0: Welcome to The Artistic Foodies, the show that explores life through the lens of art and food. I'm Abbas Muhammad. And I'm Irfan Raidan. And today we're talking about how culture changes across space and time, using both food and music as the perfect examples.
1: We have a super special shawarmaji tomb recipe, so make sure you listen all the way through. Our first guest, Muhammad Abu Taha, is originally from Amman, Jordan, and he came to the Bay Area to study engineering. But after craving the popular food of his homeland, the shawarma, and not finding a Jordanian equivalent in the Bay, he decided to get into the restaurant business himself. Let's hear more about his story from the shawarma-ji himself.
0: If you're a superhero, the shawarma
2: superhero, what is your backstory and what does shawarma mean for you growing up? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, honestly, growing up in, in, in Amman, Jordan, if you're ever looking for a snack, most of the time it's going to be shawarma. Like sure, we have uh, hummus, we have falafel, we have all these things, but shawarma is definitely the thing that everybody seeks out. and. There's like a restaurant in every single neighborhood, on every single street, on ever, around every single corner. So growing up in Jordan, like I used to eat shawarma at least two or three times a week, especially when I got older and I was in high school. You know, when you stop like eating at home and start like trying to go out and stuff like that. Yeah, shawarma was like one of the things that I ate constantly. And then moving to the Bay Area, it was just the situation where this food that was a really like central, like critical part of my life in Jordan was, doesn't exist here. And then also getting constantly disappointed every time I would like try shawarma here, which is not to say that like the shawarma here isn't delicious. You know what I mean? Like they are delicious, but just to me, like they're delicious chicken sandwiches. You know what I mean? They're like, they miss the, the, the certain characteristics of shawarma that I grew up eating. One thing led to another, I decided to become a cook, and then like I worked my way as a dishwasher. Like I started working as a dishwasher, worked my way up, took me six years. (laughs) And then uh, Alhamdulillah, I have an amazing brother who helped support me and uh, we opened up Shawarmaji.
0: I I, I love that. So it's a superhero name, Shawarmaji, superpower making awesome shawarmas, the backstory. (laughs) eating.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, And I, lo- I love the backstory because it has all the elements, you know, you're looking at, okay, I wanted good food, couldn't find it, did it myself. And then you have, you know, the, just the, the, the perfect superhero story from washing dishes to having, man, where's that sticker? You got to stick it with your face on it. Like yeah. <laughs> you don't just have a restaurant. You got to stick with your face on it. That's how you know you made it. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, no, I love I love the origin story. I love the backstory. Um, just, to, just to illustrate it a little bit more, take us through some of the flavors of your childhood. What are some things that you love that are like quintessentially Jordanian? And what
2: makes a Jordanian shawarma Jordanian? Like shawarma is originally Turkish. Turkish people are the people who invented all different types of kebabs and stuff like that. And one of those kebabs is the Doner, or what we call shawarma, right? And shawarma is actually, I think, a Turkish word as well, right? Um, And then that moved down from Turkey through Syria to Jordan, right? Um, We definitely, uh, in Jordan, I would say uh, we do Syrian shawarma, right? And I would define my, my shawarma as technically it's Syrian shawarma, right? But what Jordan does is is we took that shawarma and we just went crazy with it. Like in Jordan, we definitely have like the classics. But now, like, there's like people coming out with all different kinds of things, you know, just like riffing on shawarma and stuff like that. And it's because there's like such deep rooted love of this food that, you know, we're just like, next, you know, let's do it. Let's keep on going, you know. And... Yeah, I mean, like, it's it keeps evolving and changing and stuff like that in Jordan and Amman, mainly.
1: I got a quick follow-up question on that one. So, you know, we have our uh, Facebook group called Bay Area Halal Foodies, and there's always a lot of discussion about, you know, shawarma and the lack of shawarmas in the Bay Area. I mean, I happen to disagree with that, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, people have different interpretations. What do you consider, like, the authentic one? Is it, is it exactly the way that you make it in your uh, restaurant or is it a little bit different than that?
2: I think it's very important when you say authentic to define authentic to who, right? Um, Like authentic for me is what I make in in inshallah, you know, chicken with garlic sauce, pickles, adding fries is also very like, common. And like a lot of people just do it back home without even asking, right. You're showing them a good surprise in it, whether you like it or not. You know, the lamb comes with um, tahini onions and tomatoes. And that's authentic for like Jordan, right? These, these are the, like the basic steps of like, this is how you eat lamb. And this is how you eat chicken. Now we go a little bit further with like adding the cheese and the hot sauce. That's also something that I took from a restaurant in Jordan um, like one of my go-tos that I'd always eat at. They were like one of the first people to put cheese and hot sauce in their shawarma.
0: So cheese is a out in the shawarma or is a, is it culture, is a traditional?
2: <laughs> well, I, it's <laughs> it's definitely a new thing. I mean, there are a lot of places like doing that now in Jordan. You know what I mean? Like there's a restaurant called Al Khal, um, which, which is in Amman, in Rabia, right? And that was like the first place that I ever tried cheese and shatla in a shawarma. That's how I would order it all the time when I go there. There was other places putting cheese in their shawarma. There was even a restaurant putting like jalapenos and like pickled jalapenos in their shawarma. I think like the different the the, like the the
1: definition I
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think the definition of authentic is 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 really like a hard thing to define, especially with a food like shawarma because like these are all Jordanian things, right? And if you go to Lebanon, right? In Lebanon, they don't even press the shawarma like we do. They use, like, the regular pita bread, and they just roll it up like that, and that's how they serve their shawarma. The pressing of, like, the, the flatbread is more of a Syrian thing. That's why I say, like, our, our shawarma is, a very, is, is more Syrian than anything else, is because, like, the Arabi style is a Syrian style. Like, even in like Palestine, for example, Palestine use, they do more of like the pocket, right? And mm-hmm. they put like the shorma in like the, like a thicker pita pocket, which also exists in Jordan. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, Jordan is like, whatever you got, we'll eat, you know? It's <laughs> like meat and sauce and something, we'll eat it, no problem, you know? Cool, uh, um but, like, that's definitely, like, you know, different than, like, Lebanon, who do, like, the, the thinner pita and Syria and Jordan. Jordan does, like, both, you know. And, um, like, you know, for example, Turkey, they do more beef than lamb, you know. Um, you know, everybody's just, like, completely different. I don't see my, my role as a chef as, like, creating weird, And amazing new foods, you know what I mean? I feel like my role as a chef is to connect, like, back home food or, like, food that I grew up with to where I am right now, right? Um, So the whole concept of, like, traditional versus, like, innovation, um, I'm definitely, I would say, like, a little bit more of a traditionalist. But I do love innovation, right? I feel like when it comes to, like, innovation and and fusion and stuff like that, there needs to be a certain point. Like, yes, like, for example, at Shawarmaji, right, we innovate and we try to, like, create new shawarmas, collaborate with different chefs with different backgrounds and stuff like that. But at the same time, we have that the ground of, like, this is what's traditional for for where I'm from. You know what I mean? Like, chicken shawarma is this. What we're making, like, what we're making on this side is something new. You can I mean, yes, if you want to call it shawarma, call it shawarma. You don't want to call it shawarma, don't call it shawarma, no problem. You know what I mean? (laughs) But if you want a traditional chicken shawarma, we have it right here. You know what I mean? So it's very important for, like, especially for people who, aren't Arab or aren't, don't aren't familiar with shawarma or, you know what I mean? Who get introduced to this new thing that they understand what is a traditional before enjoying something that's not, you know what I mean? And just like kind of like comparing and contrasting to understand the relationship.
0: That's beautiful. So it's like, you cannot have innovation without a tradition to stand on, but you also can't have tradition unless someone Innovated it. Very true. At yeah. some point, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think like you, you if you look at a food like tacos al pastor, that's like traditional Mexican food. Right? Yeah. But at one point it wasn't. I'd love for you to, to talk to us about that story about, you know, uh Shawarmas from the Middle East and uh and Al Pastor in Mexico and what the connection is there, because it's such a big jump.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. definitely. There is a large um, immigration from the Middle East to like Latin America and Southern America like, like South America and Central America, right? And you get like pockets of like Arabs in like random places, honestly. And one of those random places was Mexico. and the word uh, al pastor means the shepherd, right? And so like there's a large group of Lebanese immigrants in Mexico who love lamb and decided to make lamb shawarma, you know what I mean? And then obviously the Mexican people like enjoyed it, had fun with it, and then kind of like changed it little by little. I mean, it's really, I would love to like really get in like understand the evolution of how, like where things change, because when, when, when we're innovating food, right? It's such a gradual, like, change Mm -hmm. like when was the the change from like for example uh, lamb to pork right because like right now most al pastor is pork right yeah by definition but but it ended it it, it began as lamb you know um also like like when i was looking researching some of the spices for al pastor there's a lot of like you know middle eastern spices like allspice cumin and stuff like that which are also used in mexican cuisine right but um, then there's also like achiote and chili wahio, right? Which are like quintessential like uh, me- Mexican uh, ingredients, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it just understanding the evolution and where things were added um, is something very interesting for me. But, un- but you know, I, don't, I wish I could, I wish I knew more about, you know? But yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's amazing to have like, food come from Lebanon, from Turkey, to Lebanon, to Mexico, and then to the United States as like a completely different food than what it originated.
0: Mm. It's, it's really interesting because I did I did a little bit of back, uh, back research on the history of it. I think it was 19th to 20th century when the first immigrants came. This was during the time where Lebanon was not an independent nation. It was first part of the Ottoman Empire. And then it became, a, I think it was a British protectorate, and so they started coming 19, 20th century. So we're looking at maybe like a hundred years, give or give or take a decade. So you know, in the in the grand scheme of things, a hundred years is actually a very short amount of time. Nothing, yeah. so, okay. you know, to go from like halal hand slaughtered lamb shawarmas to like pork al pastor. That's like, you know, but that's I mean, that's like what what maybe two generations. Um, but what I found fascinating was that it was really, it was, there weren't a lot of Muslims that were migrating, right? It was mostly the, the Christians, the Maronite Christians. Like tacos,
2: tacos arabes is like, uh, is, is more like shawarma than tacos, honestly. Um, because they use this, um, this, uh, flour tortilla, right? Um, it's not as like spiced and, um. For lack of a better word, red as al pastor, right? Because like al pastor is very, um, uh, very distinct because of like the achiote and the who make it very red, right? Uh, whereas al pastor really looks like traditional shawarma. I mean, not al pastor, sorry, uh, arabes. Arabes looks like traditional shawarma, and it's also um, uh, made in, in in like a, a like hybrid pita tortilla situation um, which is very interesting then you have al pastor which is very interesting because of like you have the pineapple and like the more what's the word for it like like rainforesty like ingredients tropical sorry that's the (laughs) word I was looking for tropical (laughs) the more tropical ingredients right Um, like understanding that and knowing that there's this relationship between um, like Arab cuisine and and Mexican cuisine. When I first opened up shawarmaji, I did a, a lamb al pastor, like really a merging, merging like a lamb shawarma and an al pastor uh, sandwich, right, uh, or taco. <laughs> we made like the lamb with like al pastor seasoning. Um, and then in the wrap, we had pineapple um, and onions and tahini, right? which is a very, like, it's literally like a marriage of both raps, right? And then, you know, we, we did it a few times. It was delicious, you know, as the, uh, you know, days passed on and, like, I was started thinking and, like, I started kind of, like, creating, like, all these new different shawarmas. We used to have, like, an experimental Wednesdays where I would just just go crazy <laughs> with, like, different combinations. And then I des- I, I decided, I was, like, it's, it, if I know, yes, I know about these, like Al Pastor, you know what I mean? I've done research on it, uh, I've you know, seen YouTube videos or whatever of how it's made, um, even though I've never had it myself, cause it's all pork. <laughs> but um, what if we actually like reached out to an actual Mexican chef that can like help us with this? That's when I reached out to Devin from Tacos El Precioso, who I've had his food multiple times. And it's amazing. And he was like, "Yeah, sure, no problem, right?" And we like we went over like a a few like different like combinations. One of the things was the 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 chicken al pastor, which was his own like al pastor marinade, we marinated the chicken. We basically like used his ingredients and like his you know understanding of the cuisine and our like expertise of like making a skewer and putting. The, you know, and, and building like a shawarma skewer, right, and cooking it. And then putting it in a wrap instead of a, a, a tortilla, you know what I mean? Making it the way we make our wraps. We made some interesting stuff, you know. One of them was the, was the chicken al pastor that we made with him, which, was, which had tum instead of tahini, right, but also had his like, tomatillo sauce, his, uh, his grilled pineapple and pickled onions, you know, it was like, a, like yes, these two things are al pastor, but one is like completely different than the other. You know, one was definitely more Arab and and one was a little bit more Mexican. You know what I mean? The last couple of weeks, we also did a, a pollo a la Diabla with him, right? Which is basically a salsa matcha. Salsa matcha is like a, a Mexican chili oil. Right? And he makes his with like six different kinds of chilies sesame seeds and like garlic and stuff like that and like this really amazing like very flavorful and aromatic like oil that we marinated the chicken with and then that honestly that like blew my mind you know I would have never thought to do that you know and that's why I like reaching out to different people and different uh, people who have like different thoughts than me and different backgrounds and I feel like that's where like real innovation comes from with like cooperation more than just like I'm thinking for myself kind of situation.
0: Right. Because the shawarma the man never became donor kebab until a conversation was had until an exchange happened. It didn't become shawarma and shawarma didn't evolve into a million different kinds until these conversations happen. And it's not just a conversation between people, but
1: you're talking to the land around you. Uh-huh. One of the thing that I like is uh, garlic sauce, and you know i I always ask for extra garlic sauce at every every place I go to, and you know there's not too many places that make it very good, but your own one is very very good. So, um, tell us a little bit about what you know. What how do you make yours? Um, I mean, you don't have to give away your secrets or anything, but what's <laughs> what's right the, here first? <laughs> what's the uh, What's the difference between yours and other ones like?
2: It's so funny because a lot of people ask me about like my secret and stuff like that, or don't give away your secrets and stuff. I'm like, first of all, this is not my food. I didn't invent this. You know you what I do? didn't invent garlic sauce? <laughs> you know, this, 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 this food has been around for a long time. I'm like, you know, a person in a line of like thousands of people who've made this garlic sauce before this is, yes, my version, but like I don't own garlic sauce, you know, um, so I'm always happy with like sharing how to make it. It's like one of those things that's so simple, but, but really complicated at the same time because it's it's creating an emulsion. Right. And an emulsion is the combination is, is mixing oil and water without it breaking. Right. And that's how we get that like creaminess. To create the emulsion, you need an emulsifier, which in this case is garlic. How you make mayonnaise is with eggs. So the same concept, but instead of eggs, we're using garlic. So what we do, so, because we do it in like huge batches. So we just basically get a big pot and you put 18 pounds of garlic in there. Because that's what come in, a case is 18 pounds, right? So we just put the whole case in there, peeled garlic. Um, we get like... Uh, it also, like the type of garlic is very important. We get ours from like uh, Christopher Ranch and uh, Gilroy.
1: The garlic capital of the world.
2: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, we, we put the garlic in the, uh, the big pot. We put our salt our lemon juice, and this is like something that I actually I just like I, I figured out. I don't want to say recently, but like when we opened up the restaurant. So when we we're doing the pop ups, I wasn't doing this, but after opening up the restaurant, is we add the water before adding the oil, right? And because we're using an immersion blender, so it whips it up so fast that it doesn't really matter, right? Because the whole thing that you're afraid of is like after you put all these things, right, and you're blending it and you're mixing it or like you're smashing it or uh, whichever technique you're using, you're adding oil very slowly, right? Because adding oil in the right ratio is what makes it stable, right? If you add oil too fast, it breaks the whole emulsification and it just doesn't work. You just basically end up with oil with bits of garlic in it. So basically, like once you put garlic, salt, lemon juice, and water and you mix it all together, you make sure it's very fine and ground up. Then you add oil little by little until you create this emulsification. And then you end up with doom.
1: Nice. This top secret recipe is right here on the Artistic Foodies podcast.
2: The the real secret of this (laughs) recipe is
0: if your wife doesn't like garlic, this could cause issues in your marriage. Oh yeah. You both gotta be on the sauce. Just as a closing, I'd like to ask you kind of a outside-the-box question. If you had a chance to go back 10 generations to a predis- predecessor of yours, to someone who's making the hottest shawarma of the time 10 generations ago, and if you got a chance to, to speak to a shawarma maker 10 generations from now,
2: what would you say to these two different people? That's a very interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> let's i mean if i went to like the obviously the oldest or like like a an older Show water maker 10 generations ago thank you (laughs) like you know that's that's the best thing that i you know like really like with all my heart thank you for creating and like continuing this like amazing uh food that like really shaped my life you know what i mean like it's so weird because it's such a a common, you know, food, like saying like burgers shaped my life, you know? <laughs> which is like, it shaped my body too. I love it. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah. But it's just been such an integral part of my life and also like, you know, my career. Yeah. I mean, thank you. That's the, you know, what I would tell them <laughs> for somebody, uh, 10 generations in the future,
1: they're probably gonna be on Mars or something. So yeah, yeah. Different. First kind of, of all, flavors. is the meat
2: whatever meat that you're using <laughs> is it halal or what? <laughs> what kind of meat
1: is that? Yeah, they're, <laughs> gonna, they're gonna be doing the uh, lab meat by then. Oh yeah, sure. probably. Really?
0: Yeah. Like the, uh, fake kind of fake
1: life. stuff.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah we still God. have our, our our lambs around in ten generations.
2: <laughs> yeah, was just like back in my day, we used to. again. Like uh, it would just be awesome just to see, like what they're doing and like, or what the what what the tradition is. You know, I mean, what is traditional for them? Mm. You know, that would be a really like interesting question. You know, like
0: that's now that's really beautiful and that's a very humble humble answer and a very righteous answer. You know, we're sending gratitude to the ancestors and we're learning
1: from the future. Yeah. And now for a quick break and a word from our sponsors.
0: Lahori Restaurant, located in downtown San Jose, serves authentic Pakistani and North Indian cuisine. Specialties include Lahori chana, chicken tandoori, goat biryani, and chicken charga, a whole roasted chicken cooked in their special spices and served on the weekends. For more info, check out Lahori Restaurant on Yelp or call them at 408-320-1221.
1: In this second part of our episode, we speak with Ronnie Malley, a master musician, multi-instrumentalist, playwright, and also a keen lover of shawarma. We ask Ronnie to take us on a journey through his life but also through the world to see how the oud, a classical musical instrument, evolved as it traveled across the world, just like the shawarma.
3: What's funny is that, you know, shawarma has also been a huge part of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not only did I grow up helping my mom cater with, you know, her food, I also grew up um, helping my uncle at his bakery, uh, that's how I saved up enough money to buy my first musical instrument. Oh wow! And it's actually a pretty good place to start the story because that's my uh, uh, interpolation between shawarma and music. <laughs> uh, growing up, because uh, I was saving my money, you know, working my uncle's Middle Eastern bakery to buy my first instrument, which was a guitar at the time, and uh, all of that was was while I was eating great shawarma sandwiches mm-hmm. from Steve's, and. Uh, You know, growing up, uh, once I got that instrument, my dad was a musician already, and my brother is a musician. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just food that got us into uh, our culture and understanding our culture. It became music then. And so we kind of started a family band. And I didn't necessarily think that I was going to be playing Middle Eastern music or any world music at the time, mainly because I was listening to a lot of rock and roll. Uh, particularly that my cousins gave me a healthy dose of, and uh, you know, it was like heavy rock, and it, that's that's what I listened to. I thought that was my Americanness, being American. And I remember distinctly one day I was probably about you know thirteen, fourteen, and we were driving around in our pickup truck from the southwest suburbs of Chicago. and uh, I was listening, my brother and I were listening to Slayer on the record on the cassette deck you know, this heavy thrash group that, you know, especially in the 80s and 90s, if you listen to that, people would look at you like, are you a devil worshiper? (laughs) They're like, no, it's just this music, you know, there's something about it, the power of it. And so uh, he would listen to it. And then he just kind of said, okay, you like that and you're learning guitar, how about this? And he takes it out and he puts in a cassette tape of the uh, Egyptian crooner, Abdul Halim Hafiz. Mm-hmm. This guy is like the equivalent of Mehdi Hassan, you know? Mm-hmm. And so he puts in this cassette tape and all of a sudden guitar opens it up with this just huge orchestra of violins and everything. And I'm like, Whoa, what is this? And he's like, listen, it's got guitar on it. And I was just sold right there. I said, okay, I see where we can blend these worlds together. That's an electric guitar, but playing Egyptian music
0: from Slayer, and, <laughs> From Slayer to Abdul Halim Hafiz.
3: Slayer to Abdul Halim Hafiz, man. Yeah, you know, What's great is you know I can I can play both both styles, you know. Or Abdul Halim. Mm. And you know, and, and thus the journey began, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was an interesting one because through music, you start to find, how do I discover my own identity? You know, am I fully Arab, you know, and I, am I going to fully practice that or am I fully American? Because in the eighties and the nineties, you know, it was not uncommon for immigrant parents to speak only English with their children, to want their children to speak only English without an accent whatsoever. And uh, part of the reason was, you know, they wanted them to assimilate into the society, not to forget who they were, but you wanted to get a good job. You wanted to get ahead. You wanted to do what you needed to do. And uh, I might have taken it for granted or just been too naive to recognize something like that. But I'm so grateful to my dad, who himself came here as an immigrant when he was 14. So his he speaks with a very little accent, if any at all. Uh, I went to high school here as well. And, uh, but still kind of kept up his tradition through the music. And if anything at all, that's what he passed down to us. And uh, so we started playing guitar. uh, And because my my dad and brother are also both percussionists. And I just looked at him and I started off as a percussionist myself. And I said, guys, one of us has to play melody in this uh, family band here. And uh, so my dad started to give us a lot of music from a variety of different places. We started to play Egyptian music, Lebanese, Syrian music. And before long, uh, he would have my brother and I do a small show in between sets of when my dad's band would play at, at this restaurant they were playing called uh, Beirut Restaurant. Beirut. How
0: old were you around this time?
3: Uh, I was about 14. Incredible. Okay. I was about 14 years old. Uh, but I remember the, the first experience I had on stage when I really made that shift was when my dad's friend, uh, Najib Bahri, who's a master percussionist from Tunisia, came to our home and they were having a, a barbecue. And I came back from my guitar lesson. and he just sees me walking in with the guitar and he's like, hey, kid, what are you doing? Come here. I said, uh, yeah. He's like, so you play guitar, huh? Okay, play this. And he just hums a melody to me like da 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 da. da, da. And I'm just looking at him like, huh? I not written in front of me. I don't know what, what you're talking about. He's like, figure it out. So I eventually I plucked a few notes and I figured out what he was playing. You know, at the time I knew like two chords, you know. I'm like, yeah, alright, i'll figure it out. And um so he just looks to my dad after that and he says, Okay now they must play Arabic music. <laughs> I didn't realize what he meant was that by providing this oral tradition, the way that you learn the music by somebody saying it to you and repeating it, that that was my first lesson in that. So that's what he meant by that. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, this at that time, 12, 13 year old kid, I'm just like, yeah, maybe in a couple of years, I'm going to go upstairs and finish learning uh, Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. <laughs> you know, and I go upstairs and he comes back two weeks later and he's like, grab your guitar, your amplifier and put on something nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he put on this like kid's suit, you know, and we get in the car and he goes and he literally throws my brother and I on the stage to play at a wedding with him for the next six hours. Six hours. Yeah. Weddings are long. You're basically, you know, the Middle Eastern weddings too. And, and you know, concerts in our, in Asia in general, you know, they're long. They're not like these half hour shows, right? <laughs> and uh, so we get on stage and, and play. And that was my first time on stage. I knew like two chords, but I had rhythms. And I'm playing these chords with distortion guitar in <laughs> Middle Eastern music. But it, it was an experience. And fast forward many years later, my dad would take us to the restaurant with him. And my brother and I would go up as these two little kids learning all of this Middle Eastern music, Arabic music. And um, people were just kind of – I didn't pay much attention to it because we were having fun. But people were just enamored like, wow, you guys are like learning your culture. You're doing it through, through music. And, uh, you know, only in hindsight can I realize that, wow, that was probably the the most important thing to really get me to know my language, to know my culture, to know my people, Mm -hmm. to to know that there are other people in the Arab world as well. That, you know, we met Christian Arabs, Jewish Arabs, Druze Arabs, uh, Muslims from different sects, uh, different denominations. And all of that was through the lens of of music, which was uh, really humbling. To be honest with you so fast forward you know my dad said okay guitar is great your brother and you guys do a really great job on on the stage uh you know and these little kids getting tips for
2: <laughs> yeah. I, didn't,
3: I didn't even have peach fuzz at the time you know <laughs> <laughs> we're getting like tips and all kinds of stuff uh and then my dad said look if we really want to move ahead with this family band you should probably switch over to keyboards and i said okay that's great uh Let's get a keyboard, you know and I was listening to a lot of Arabic music from the 60s and 70s and and I was really enamored by the the organ sound, you know, these old synthesizers, which today people are like, oh, that's vintage. If you still have that, it's now worth you know quadruple the amount. Um, but in the 80s and 90s the digital realm started to really take over yeah. and folks were just kind of uh, enamored by that. look, this thing almost sounds like a trumpet. This almost sounds like a saxophone. And I'm like, if you really want a trumpet or saxophone, how about get a real one? (laughs) (laughs) But it's what the sound was. It was the sound of the 80s, even in in music that we hear today uh, from from 80s uh, pop music. But the reason that's relevant is that I, I was very stubborn in making the shift to the digital keyboards. And I just, I wanted an organ, the kind that I heard being played on Abdel Halim's records, right? Right. And the time that my dad had asked me was around the same time that uh, we were playing at this restaurant and now I was allowed to kind of join the band. And they were bringing this famous star from Egypt uh, and his name is Megdil Husseini. And when I heard the name, I was like, what? Because I would hear Abdel Halim and Umm Kulthum speak his name when they were introducing the band. This is the guy who played with Abdel Halim who played with them and I'm like, I'm about to play with a legend. That's like, you know, somebody coming to you and, and saying, Hey, you know, by the way, uh, Aretha Franklin's coming and you're going to be playing with her <laughs> or, you know, or something to the, or Herbie Hancock uh, is coming and you're going to be playing with him. Oh my God. Uh, probably a more appropriate analogy. And I was 15 at that time and still on guitar. And he came with his big organ. He's like, Abdul Halim gave me this organ and, and that's when it sank in really that my dad said, uh, yeah, you should start playing organ. And he took me to his friend who was a, a drummer, an Armenian drummer that was in his band, Armenian-Iraqi. And uh, he had a replica of that organ. And he said, I'll give it to you. You have to go and get quarter tones on it because Middle Eastern music uses uh, extra notes that exist between the white and black keys, if you will, quarter tones. You hear this in Azan when you when people do the call to prayer as well. And so we got the organ and, it, you know, it weighed about 110 pounds. <laughs> but we would carry it everywhere we would go. And it was the replica of this guy's organ, Magdal Hosseini, that Abdi Hadim gifted to him. So I'm on like cloud nine. Now, mind you, <laughs> all of this is before the Internet. So the only way to really experience the culture, to experience and, and learn it, was by meeting people and meeting with them. So I was extremely fortunate and grateful that my dad's friends would give me these apprenticeships and uh, we would be able to uh, you know, learn music as it was in Iraq, learn music as it was in Palestine, as it was in Egypt or North Africa, or Morocco or Tunisia. And um, all of those experiences were just face-to-face, basically. So we get this keyboard and organ... And for the next few years, I make my shift self-taught, took some piano lessons on organ. And we become a band that can take weddings and all kinds of stuff. And we get to choose the singer that we want. But more than that is uh, because singers or vocalists or stars that would be coming from overseas, uh, presenters here would not be able to afford to bring their entire group. So often they would bring like a ringer with them, a violinist or uh, a guitarist or a percussionist, and the singer would come and they'd get a pickup band here in Chicago. And more often than not, we would end up becoming that pickup band. So we ended up playing with like these stars like Magdib Hosseini, call them Sahel, Tony Hanna, and <clears throat> all of these iconic names in, in the Middle East. And I would sit down with their musicians and get these apprenticeships. And it was just a beautiful wow, thing. Ah, that's so dumb. I, I, you know, it was just about being in the right place at the right time. And we would play with them and perform with them and learn all of their songs. Uh, and so that experience lasted for the next, you know, 10, 15 years. And we still continue to do that. And we still maintain these relationships with folks. Eventually, I made my shift over to the digital world. And I, I had to give up that organ. And I, I got into this digital keyboard. And I was probably about 16, 17 at the time. And uh, I just came to this weird realization. It's like, I'm playing guitar. I'm playing keyboards. These are instruments, both of which were made in Japan at the time. I'm like, I'm playing Middle Eastern music on Japanese-made instruments. It's <laughs> not right. It's not sitting right with me. You know, I, I need something that's of my tradition. What what, what instrument can I gravitate towards? And, and the oud seemed the most natural, you know, natural course uh just because it's a stringed instrument i already played guitar and i can figure out most of it and um again i I gotta come back to saying that i did not have internet there was no internet at this time there were no cell phones at this time And i was learning dark (laughs)
0: ages
3: (laughs) well you know that's that's all based on perspective (laughs) because uh you know dark ages it's it's a relative term i i guess you know they called the dark ages the, during the golden age of Islam, they called that the dark ages. Yet yeah, that's, oh, that's when true. algorithms, that's when this instrument came about and eventually gave birth to the guitar, which is kind of where I'm going with, with this. In essence, I, I went backwards, you know, I, I, I learned all this modern stuff to come back to, to my roots in many ways. Uh, going from Slayer to Abdul Halim Hafiz. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that um, could be the name of this podcast episode. <laughs> from Slayer to Abdul Halim Hafiz.
3: <laughs> you know, from... From, <laughs> from uh, you know, from the digital keyboards and, and the guitar to Al-Oud, you know, uh, an instrument that has roots as far back as 2,000 years ago. And um, so I kind of just made that decision that i'm going to do this just at least for me i'll still play the keyboards and all that stuff because it's what's accepted in the weddings and what's accepted in the commercial world but i needed to get right with myself and learn a new repertoire and it was the greatest decision i made um it took me a while as i said being born before the internet was like there's no teacher readily available so i had to teach myself a lot uh and again these apprenticeships were invaluable you know and then uh, begging people, if you're going overseas, please bring back music. Please bring back sheet music or something, you know. And I think I was in the Middle Eastern grocery stores on a daily basis because that was where you found all of the music, the tapes and, the, you know, the redistributors. Let's just call them that. <laughs> we're not going to say pirating, okay. We're, they were redistributors of music. And thank God they were because there would have been no other way for me to get that music. Had it not been for people who'd set up shop, make duplications of cassettes, and redistribute them,
0: they uh, were the Spotify of the olden days. I mean, artists still ain't <laughs> getting paid from there.
3: <laughs> exactly! Wow, <laughs> <laughs> you the nail on the head. I, we are making like all of this old school analog, analog analogies. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's coming to be, and um, you know, so. I picked this instrument up and and I I realized what I had been missing for a very long time in my life. So that same friend that my dad uh, um, had, the Tunisian drummer who said they must play Arabic music. He's like, well, you're playing Naoud. Do you know the story of Ziriyab? And I'm like, who? He's like, Ziriyab, you have to know this guy's story. And so he proceeded to tell me. Ziriyab was a ninth century musician uh, born in Baghdad. And legend has it that he was uh, a freed uh, slave of African descent. And he was nicknamed Zediyab, which means blackbird, because of his dark complexion uh, and his sweetness of character and clarity of his voice and his tone. He sang well, purported to have known over 10,000 songs. So he was a famous Oud player, and he was under the tutelage of a court musician in the Abbasid Abbas, your namesake there, the uh, Abbasin, uh, Harun al-Rashid was the Khalifa at the time. Harun rashid okay. Yeah. So we're talking about, you know, late 700s, early 800 AD, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so Ishaq al-Mosali is the musician who's in the in his court, who's also an old player, and who happens to be Izzed teacher. So Ishaq, uh, uh, Harun goes to Ishaq and says, look, I've been looking for something that's, Just new. I I need something new uh, to hear. You know, I I need something to satisfy the soul. So even back in the 10th century, people were looking for this new thing, right? We're talking about traditional and not traditional. Well, here here it goes, right? Mm -hmm. And so he brings him, he says, I got just the guy for you. And brings him Zidia and presents him to him. And he says, "Uh, this is my student Zidia. And he's definitely got a beautiful voice. Nobody sings like him. And he plays like a whiz. He's like, okay, it's Haq. Give him your Oud. Let him play for us. And he's like, with all due respect, I must play my own Oud. And he gets his own Oud out. And he says, you know, uh, not all Ouds are made the same. Mm-hmm. I've actually innovated this one. And Zidiyab is actually known to have added an additional course of strings to mm-hmm. the Oud. Okay. So initially it had starts off with two, goes to three, four, and then Zidiyab adds a fifth. And he was a very kind of superstitious individual. Each course of strings represented something different. Uh, In those times, art and science were mixed. So music was not only considered an art, but it was also considered a science. So they viewed music. They didn't even call music music. That term, which is actually comes from the Greek nine, the muses, music comes from the nine muses. And it wasn't even used in in the Middle East at that time. The, the term that we used was hendesit assault, which is the architecture or the construct of sound, or the engineering of sound, if you will, right? And because it was viewed as the science. So he says uh, each one of these strings is you know something unique to me. One represents air. One represents water. The other fire, and the other earth. And he says then I've added a fifth string to represent the human soul. Wow. And so it, and. The humors and the elements were things that people would uh, look at as almost what we call pseudoscience today, but as a, a pathway to empirical science, if you will. Right, and there were always four, right? The four there were those four things, right? Yeah. And uh, but you know we could say there are there's a fifth element too. You know there's ether, right? And and, and there's other things that we've under, uncovered today as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Um,
3: and their counterparts. So regardless, this guy, you know, so yeah, plays for Harun and just wows him. He's like, this is exactly what I was looking for. This is like that new sound, you know. It, for me, I always looked at it as, as if it was like that. Uh, you remember that moment in Back to the Future where uh, – um, Marnie McFly is playing and, and the guy gets on the phone with his cousin. Hey, Chuck, ostensibly Chuck Berry. I got that new sound <laughs> for you. <laughs> so that's what I always thought that moment to be. Wow. Right? And it's funny, too, because we're talking about tradition, fusion and innovation and all of these things. Uh, the first thing that he sings to Harun, and this is what was recorded, is uh, Ya ayyuhal malkul maymun, ya ta'irahu Harun. Rahu an nas wa ya which means like uh, loosely translated, uh, "Oh, you know, King of the Believers, um, you are the soaring bird. People have come to you and left inspired to innovate. Uh, oh, you know, King of the Believers." Uh, and I, this is actually, I actually wrote an entire play about Ziryab and the Ud called Ziryab the, uh, the Songbird of Andalusia. And so I kind of set that little piece to to some music. Uh, it's kind of like. And I sang it and this whole big thing there. So uh, he does this and it, his teacher is kind of like astounded and his jaw drops. He's like, first of all, you refuse to use my instrument. Second of all, you've been kind of hiding this other innate aspect of your talent. And now you've won favor in the court of Harun al-Rashid. And, and like, you're, what, do you want to take my job? You want to take my bread? Big flex. <laughs> you know? And so... <laughs> so He finishes it up and the the way the legend goes is his teacher goes up to him after he says, oh, so, uh, yeah, I've never really heard anything like that before. Again, listen, I'm going to make you a deal. Here's a bag of money. You can get the hell out of Baghdad (laughs) 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 or you could stay and I can't guarantee you any safety, which one. So, you know, he's this young kid kind of, and he's married with, you know, ostensibly with a family and, uh, He decides to leave. And, you know, at this time, why not? Because this is also at the same time that there's another, the furthest western frontier of Islam is growing in Andalusia, in Al-Andalus. And that's thriving. People are already hearing about it. Uh, Harun al-Rashid already started a translation movement to translate the works of the ancient Greeks, the Coptics, and to expound on these philosophies. Sciences are, are thriving in the Islamic world right now. So it's, it's a, a point of expedition, right? So he leaves, traverses through uh, Damascus, spends a little bit of time there, goes to Cairo, spends some time there, and lands in cairo Tunisia, which actually at that time had the first great mosque, which was uh, the Aqaba Mosque. And it actually served as a, a learning hub for Islam for people from all over the world to kind of come to all over the known world at that time, at least before airplanes. So, uh, he lands there, stays there. And, you know, as artists do, they become artists of conscience and and they start to write about social justice and these sorts of things. So he becomes so big, this is Zidia, that, uh, they name a neighborhood after him, Zidia, Zidia but he gets a little bit of uh, uh, backlash, if you will, uh, because the caliph at that time, Ziyadat uh, uh, Allah, is having a row with Baghdad and, and the Abbasid. And, you know, as it goes, everybody wanted to be the caliph. Everybody wanted to be the steward of Islam at this, at this time. And so... Zidia pens a very damning poem to him, you know, calling him an illiterate crow and you're a coward, you know, you, uh, if you were a leader, I would follow you, but you actually follow me. <laughs> and, you know, kind of like in respect of the uh, mm-hmm. uh And so that kind of earned him a ticket outside of, <laughs> to get exiled once again out of Tunisia. And it was okay because he had received an invitation by the emir of Cordoba in Andalusia at the time, uh, Abdul the I. So he decides to take him up on it and goes and traverses North Africa, crosses the Straits of Gibraltar and lands himself in uh Cordoba. And Gibraltar, I say that all of these anglicized names, it's, Gibraltar is Jebel Tarik. <laughs> Tariq. because Tariq ibn Zayd was the first person to cross over in 711 into Al-Andalus. But when you uncover little gems like this guy, like Ziryab, who ends up taking the oud all the way to Cordoba, Spain. And he gets there and Amir Abdul Rahman I has already passed away. He's disheartened, he starts to leave. His son, Abdul Rahman II, is in charge. And he has in his uh, court uh, a head musician who happens to be Sephardic Jewish. And says, "Look, I know this guy. You got to get him." Uh, so they go and they find him. And said, "Look, he's got a he's got a meeting with you, and and he can he can meet with you, and uh, he'd love to, to talk to you." So he comes back up, meets with Amir Abdul Rahman II, and is it, basically he bestows upon him uh, the title of Minister of Culture. And in fact, all of this I'm telling you is not even just hearsay. There is a 15th century uh, Algerian scholar by the name of Al-Makkari. And Al-Makkari wrote an anthology, a huge volume of books about Al-Andalus and the history of Al-Andalus. And he is the source that nearly even all Western scholars go to. I've read stuff in English and in Spanish, and I'm like, man, I've read this before somewhere. And I go back to the volumes where what I used for research, I'm like, that's like literally word for word translated from this guy's book written in Arabic, which you can find on in PDF online, by the way. And so I'm fascinated because in this book, I'm finding poems written by Zidia, poems and stories, written poems written by his children, stories. Now, what's fascinating is it describes in detail even the what Ziryab was paid by the Emir, like to the the T, like, I'm going to give you this much dunams in this particular land. You're going to get this much as your salary, as your stipend for being minister of culture. Uh, This is what I'd like for you to do. I'm like, all of these riches are here. Why is this not in history books all around the world? Right. This was the roots of the new world. This is where they spoke Arabic for 700 years. This is why Spanish has over 5,000 Arabic words in it. Mm -hmm. Even the word ustedes, ustedes is the formal term of saying you all or you in a formality way, comes from ustedes. No way. Ale, 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 comes when people say Allah, 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 Allah. Allah. (laughs) Oh Allah comes from when people say inshallah. And it means the same thing. So sometimes, though, people don't want to identify or give credit where it's due, which is why this history is omitted or whitewashed. And so I found it like, here's my instrument and my music leading me right down another path here, a rabbit hole of history that is so seldom spoken about. And we know the reason why. Because if they gave credit to a people that they've vilified in the past 20 years or so, or even more, really, then how can we legitimize doing what we do to them? How can we legitimize or justify the people that gave us modern medicine, modern surgical tools, astronomy, languages, mathematics? I can go on. <laughs> I can go on and on, you know, but that it really stuck with me in a way that was visceral. You know what I mean? And what made it even more poignant was Zidiad goes straight to work, right, with all of this work, and he he gets the music to go, and he gets culture to go, but then he he realizes, you know, there's more room here. These Castilians and these people here were not uh, uh, as civilized as they they might imagine, you know. So he brings this knowledge from the East that, you know, Baghdad is incidentally, you know, just for clarity, is not only Arab. You know, Baghdad was Persian, Arab, South Asian, you know, it was it was Turk in, in whatever Turk was, Central Asian.
1: Multicultural, yeah.
3: Multicultural. It was seljuk it was it was a cosmopolitan place that um, historians, scientists, artists would congregate. We had cosmopolitan places. You know, I, I think this is really fascinating too because we're talking about Iraq as a cradle of civilization in many ways. And, you know, tying back to your shawarma story, you know, I remember seeing in in the the show Ugly Delicious that it was Iraqi Christian immigrants that brought tacos Arabes to Mexico, which was a very interesting um, parallel, a correlation. So Zidiab gets to work and then he introduces different things like the culinary arts. He coins a term that even the English started to use, from soup to nuts, meaning everything. So Ziryab yeah, coins this term, and what he's talking about, he's like, we should eat our meals in courses as they do in Baghdad. In Baghdad, uh, from soup to nuts, and talks about we should drink from glassware instead of this metalware. He brings a fashion of different hair hair cutting, uh, of, of stylizing, opens a, a school of cosmetology there. What different uh, clothing, robes, threads. Telling people that, you know, in the winter, wear colorful clothing, you know, uh, it, it, to, you know, warm the body, but also to, to, you know, brighten the eye.
1: He was the first, first uh, fashion designer?
3: He <laughs> becomes an arbitrator of fashion and, and culture. And in a foodie. He was an artistic foodie. <laughs> He's not only a foodie. to mm-hmm. this very day, there is a culinary arts uh, a school that's called Ziryeb in Spain. Wow. And he has... He oh, has wow. actual dishes called ziriyabi, or you know that there's a street in Cordoba called Calle Ziriyab. So people revere him as this one of the first cultural purveyors of Cordoba and of Spain in general. Uh, he was more than just a foodie. There are actual cookbooks out there that are listed with his name on.
0: It. That's incredible!
3: It, wow, is, I had no idea. Crazy. That's
0: incredible. Crazy.
3: Food so, and music, crazy. right, go uh-huh. together. Uh-huh. So this guy introduces al opens up a conservatory of music and makes it accessible to all people, not just the elite, and to men and women, right? And so uh, they attend a school, and eventually the theories and the practice and the pedagogy that he creates there becomes a model for other conservatories to open in Europe. So ostensibly the, the first real music conservatory, if you will, open to the public in Europe was by this guy. In like the ninth century, right, and eventually this instrument, el becomes an instrument that Europeans like to call a lute. Mm. al oud becomes a lute. A lute, lute is from el Other places have lauta, lauto. Same instrument, al which in Arabic means wood or twig or branch. Mm. Um, because it's made out of wood. But now anybody who makes anything that even resembles this, they call them a luthier. even if you make guitars. So eventually this becomes the European lute, you know, the thing that they play. And eventually that European lute becomes the guitar. Now, the new world happens, right? But then 1491, the last emir of Granada submits the key to the city, to the Catholic monarchs, Queen Isabella, King Ferdinand. They take over, and the Islamic rule on the, on the Iberian Peninsula kind of ends, right? But the influence does not end. The new world happens. Columbus wouldn't even be able to cross over seas, if it weren't for the astrolab, which was an invention during the Islamic reign. And mm-hmm. specifically, one person who really uh, excelled at it was a woman from Syria named Miriam al Astrolabia.
0: Wow. She, she cre-
3: created an astrolab. Uh, her father was an astrolab maker as well. And these were basically GPS of the time, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one of the first colonial settlements uh, near Mexico was in Veracruz. And in Veracruz, they have a, a style of music that they call son jarocho, And many of the words even that they use to describe some of the music can actually still be go back to Arabic. Like there's a whole uh, style that they call harabe, harabe music. Mm-hmm. And it's not arabi or Arab. Harabe is actually sharabi. Sharab is like syrup or a drink, Mm -hmm. a drink, right? And it's the same, I believe, in Urdu as well. And um, so there is this form of music. There are these styles of instruments that are very similar. They even have an instrument in Mexico called laud. In Cuba, there's an instrument called laud. And if you've ever watched or listened to the Buena Vista Social Club, they actually have a musician on there named Barbarito Torres who plays laud. And he plays a song on there like this. So this led me down this path. I'm like, all right, what's the connection between Arabs and Mexicans? What (laughs) was the name of the song that you just played? The song I just played is uh, called Chan Chan, and it's by uh, uh, Buena Vista Social Club. Beautiful. Uh, But you, you hear this. Now, mind you, we can't ignore also the huge African influence on music in Latin America, particularly in Veracruz, in Cuba, in Brazil, in Peru. Now, a lot of that was due to the slave trade, but... Even that is so just, it's, it's convoluted sometimes. People conflate so many different things and don't realize, like, many of these enslaved West Africans were also coming from Muslim-predominant countries. So the music that they were listening to was also already not just traditional music. It was music that was old and new. There was You know, just by virtue of the adhan, which comes with it a music theory that Ziryab brought from Iraq all the way to Spain called Maqam, that eventually becomes Nuba, This is also in Africa. Anywhere you find a stem or somebody singing a calling to prayer, even in Kashmir, Pakistan, Indonesia, all the way to California, they're doing it in Maqam with a music theory that's embedded in the music theory of the West, Mm -hmm. embedded in the music theory of Africa, embedded in the music theory of Latin America as well. If we don't think that the old influences the new and then inspires the new to create Mm-hmm. Something that will eventually become old again as well. Then we're fooling ourselves. We need to understand that all of that we give, if we want to keep it alive, it can't be just set in stone right. and that's it. Tradition is organic, culture is organic, and that's how we identify that a, a people are organic. You know, it's like, it goes back to like saying that, yeah, my family's from Palestine, so was Jesus, but there's still people in Palestine, you know. Uh, yeah, Buddha was, you know, from South Asia, from India, but, uh, that doesn't mean there are no more people there, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, so this instrument makes its way from Iraq to Spain to Latin America, eventually becomes the guitar and that acoustic guitar eventually becomes the electric guitar, right? So I told you, we talked about this story before our best. About uh, a guy in California. This is the Dick, Dick Dale. Dale story? Dick Dale.
0: Yes, yeah, the Dick Dale story. I love this story.
3: Okay. So, Dick Dale, uh, whose real name was Richard Mansour. <laughs> <laughs>
1: gets me every
3: time. Right? Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, that, that's the same with a lot of people out there, right? A lot of people, except Russell Peters.
1: <laughs> I don't, there's also Freddie Mercury, but obviously not Arab, but obviously Middle Eastern in the background, and
3: yeah, he was uh, he he grew up in uh, Zanzibar, I think, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, he was Sri Lankan, but he was Parsi. Yeah, he was Parsi. Incredible. Yeah. Um, so Dick Dale uh, here is his dad and his uncle playing a song on oud and the darbuka, the percussion drum. And that song uh, was a song that he heard, and he's just like, man, and he's playing guitar, and he had a very good relationship. Uh, he was friends with Leo Fender. And many people might not know who Leo Fender is, but many people have heard of the Fender guitar, yes. the Fender guitar amplifier. That's the inventor. So Dick Dale, Richard Mansour, and Leo Fender are very good friends. And Dick said, you know, says to... Um, Leo, he's like, I want to play guitar as fast and as hard as uh, Gene Krupa plays the drums. And Gene Krupa is this famous jazz drummer who just he hit the drums like he was, you know, killing them, hmm. and just really hard hitting drummer, but fantastic, legendary, right? And uh, he's like, okay, so he invents these different prototypes of amplifiers. You know, Monsoon would keep playing them, and 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 they would just get. Louder and they could blow them out and he'd bring him another one. He's like, I need something more powerful. I need something more new. And I'm sitting there thinking in my mind, like, here's that same cycle of people always looking for something new from back in Harun al time to the 20th century, right? So over a thousand years later. And he's like, I need something more. I need more power. <laughs> so he gets them and finally, you know, the twin reverb amp comes out of all of this. It's the powerful amp that he wants, and now he can play that song nice, hard, and loud. And the song that he heard his uh, dad and uncle playing, he ends up recording it sounding more like this. (laughs) ¶¶ records it and what comes out of this lineage of maqam music coming out of the 9th century 8th century in Baghdad going to Cordoba the invention of the guitar spreading its wings all the way to Latin America the regular guitar acoustic guitar turning into the electric guitar and some kid in California well, hears his dad and uh, uncle playing it on this instrument he records this song Called Mizirlu, which incidentally means "girl from Egypt," right? We <laughs> <'Cause>, uh, <laughs> don't know who, who wrote the song, right? But it's a popular standard to so this guy in the 1960s, creating an American genre of music called surf rock. Yeah. So talk about the American immigrant story, and and just tracing things back to their roots, and and this coming out of it. Uh, it's it's a fascinating. Fascinating thing, and now the song—you know—people call it the Pulp Fiction song. Yeah, you know, Black Eyed Peas used it as a, a, a sample. It was in a T-Mobile commercial. For goodness sake, you make it to a car commercial or a phone cell cell phone commercial, you've made it. You know. So,
1: what was the what was the original uh, Arabic version of that Pulp fi- pop Fiction song?
3: Uh, well, Miss Elu, girl from Egypt, it's it was a piece that was not just Arab. Because Arabs, Turks, and Greeks all played it. I played in a Greek band for two years, and we used to play it all the time. And it would sound more like, you know... the idea a little more slower a little bit more ornate not as rock heavy <laughs> and if you read on i mean there's a, there's a whole wikipedia yeah. just this song alone right wow. uh, you know but the melody itself could have been around for quite some time you know that's the whole thing about these regions i grew up playing a lot of middle eastern music but i, I played Assyrian music i played turkish music i played greek music arab music and part of the reason was because music theory was Relatively the same. They all use maqam music tradition, right? But more than that, a lot of the melodies were the same too. Like we would do one song uh, as a Fairuz song, which is Nassam Al Hawa. but there's an exact same song that's almost identical with Greek words called, uh, my fire. And so I, I play this. And then the Greek guys were just like, you know, in the band, like, man!" and they're contemporaries of each other. And then you just kind of stop and you think, I'll give you another example. Maybe this is something you guys can relate to. Anybody here ever hear of the movie show
1: yeah, yeah the old so so old Bollywood movie
3: yeah yeah you remember that song in that movie right so there's a Greek song that's exactly the same <laughs> And it's called Do You Love Me, Do You Love Me? Music, even to this day, there was an entire documentary written about one song that uh, is almost like a Turkish national anthem, right, an unofficial anthem, and it's called Uskuda, and it goes like this... Song exists in Arabic, Greek, Bosnian, Serbian, uh, Turkish. I've heard this song in Asian language, other Asian languages. Uh, many countries claim that this is their song. So much so that uh, a, a Bulgarian filmmaker made an entire documentary about this song. Wow! And, and, and aptly uh, titled it whose is this song? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, and I'm sure people will fight over like, no, this is mine. Oh, yeah.
3: Not only did they fight Abbas, best, like she went interviewing people and she went the one line that really stuck out. It, it became political for them. You know, maybe this is a good metaphor about like what you were talking about earlier. when people are just like tradition. If you take a tradition and mess with it, it's bad. You know, I've been doing it all my life. I've had no choice but to do that. All yeah. My life. And the whole thing is all, it comes boils down to one thing. Respect. Right. If you respect another tradition and you do something with it, with sincerity, with ikhlas, as we would say, right? It, 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 it then, then you've given your dues, you know, and you've, you've paid respect to this tradition, but you, you maintain it, you pay homage to it, and of course you renew it. Yeah. You know? Uh, and the thing is like, I understand, even if if you do that, you're still gonna have your conservative naysayers who are like, no, it's supposed to be like this forever and ever and that's it, enshrined in a museum, encapsulated in in gold, (laughs) you know? (laughs) No,
1: that's that's very actually similar to a lot of stuff that I've been uh, seeing on uh, Facebook. Uh, You know, we have our foodie group on Facebook and people complain about um, like biryani, for example, it has to be a specific way or a shawarma. It has to be a specific way, with specific ingredients. Otherwise, it's not a real shawarma or it's not real biryani. And you're yeah. not supposed to call it that. And then I was kind of, um, you know, debating with somebody. I said, look, it's, uh, you know, just take it easy. It's food. You know, it's not a, it's not like anything uh, crazy and food just like music, just like everything else, changes over time. It changes when you go to a different city, different village, different country, it evolves, and people change it. And so as long as it tastes good, it's all good.
3: Right? <laughs> and, you know, the other thing in the end, too, it's like, all right, well, 600 years ago, uh, a whole hemisphere of the earth didn't have tomatoes or corn. Let's Let's see Italian cuisine without tomatoes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or, or desi food without garlic
3: <laughs> you know what I'm saying so it's like there, sometimes some things are just also based on geography yeah. you know yep. there's, a, there's a term in um, in ethnomusicology we say we, we use called bi-musicality or tri-musicality and it's synonymous with somebody being bilingual right mm-hmm. that you don't just know a few phrases here or there you dig deep like, I can say I'm bi-musical in Middle Eastern and Indian music, for example. I studied into music. I studied tabla for five years. I taught myself to speak Hindi, you know, many different things, right? So you really dig deep into the culture. Mm-hmm. And my friend, uh, um, a Turkish musician, Mehmet uh, Salankal, he, he coined another term. He's like, yeah, I don't like musical tourism. Mm. It's like, if you want to really dig into something, you know, don't be just a tourist in it. Yeah, and, and and I think that's the same with what you're saying with the food. It's not to say you can't experiment, you can't bring in, you know, first, you know, cardamom, imagine that spice that, you know, imagine some dishes in, in Sweden, even, you know, cakes or different places around the world that are signature with that spice.
0: Ronnie, you represent music from different places, but also like, you know where you are in
3: space and time. Alhamdulillah, man. That's all you could say is, you know, Keep an eye. I, I, I live my, my life, you know, based on, you know, God created us into nations and tribes so that we may get to know one another, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and my mom always adds to it. And to love mm-hmm. one another as well. Mm-hmm. I and that. I think that's, that's the thing where maybe if some of these colonialists and settlers took that little part from, 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 you know, the religion or from, from what we've, done to love one another not to kill one another not to conquer one another you know i i think it's still possible and i I think that food and and music are definitely ways that 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 will open the path
0: fully agree. that's the you know and i always wonder like when we finally get in touch with alien life forms in space it's going to (laughs) be their food and music that we understand them through
3: you know, it's like what? What's your fuel, and 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 what's your your, your pleasure? You know, <laughs> yeah.
1: What you well, that's what that's what happened in that mo- old movie, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. They were playing music, right? The aliens to try to communicate with us. And that's a that's an old movie. You check it out, boss. <laughs> yeah, boss.
3: <but> I remember <laughs> seeing that when I was a kid. <laughs> I've read about that
1: movie in the history books. Yes. <laughs>
3: ancient history
0: whether it is through musical instruments or through delicious food culture evolves over time we interact with others crossing our geographic and ethnic boundaries to transcend superficial differences and build new and beautiful things together art and food are both great markers of culture And what an honor and a pleasure it is to be able to observe, experience, and be a part of this intergenerational evolution.
1: Thanks again so much for tuning in to the Artistic Foodies podcast. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Google Podcasts.
0: Be sure to find us on Facebook and Instagram to stay tuned for more episodes as well as bonus content. You can also have access to all of our episodes at theartisticfoodies.com.
1: As always, this podcast has been brought to you by Halal Fest Incorporated and Gamma, gathering all Muslim artists.